Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Tatooine by Jean-Christophe Réel. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and the made-up fantasy world I regularly escape to is in Minecraft. Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, and I'm the branch head at the Louis Rail Library, and after this, I'm going home and making myself a big old rigatoni cake. <laughs> Across the table from me is... I'm Toby, I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and this podcast is definitely not sponsored by Nor Sidekicks. <laughs> <laughs> We wouldn't do this without you, and we'd love to hear from you. You could send us a poem describing how the latest book we're discussing makes you feel. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. But first, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. I'm actually going to lead off this time. As a couple of months ago, I had mentioned that I had been reading Record of a Spaceborn Few by Becky Chambers. And at the time, Toby strongly recommended that I should read the Monk and Robot series. So it was with some amusement that I was reading the first Monk and Robot book. And I saw on Toby's Instagram that she had just finished Record of a Spaceborn Few. So it seems like a nice circle. Did you like Psalm for a while? Psalm for the Wild Build? That's the first one, right? That's the first one. Yeah, I did. Um, Not as much as some of her other books, but I I enjoyed it. I liked the characters and the... I just love her world building so much. Everyone is different, but they all feel fully realized. Mm -hmm. And the characters... It didn't go the way I expected it to. Um, The interaction between the robot and the monk was (laughs) quite a surprise to me, and uh, I enjoyed it. Hmm. I think I like the second one better, so... Yeah, well, I can look forward to that one then. Speaking of books, uh, this might be like inside library news, but uh, every once in a while we get something called a hot list. And what it is, is it sort of shows what is going to be published over the next little while. And the latest hot list for spring and summer came out. And as I was looking through it, I thought, you know what? There's something for all three of us in that list. For Toby, Laurie Moore. Oh, first has, time in a decade yeah, that she's put out something I know something that new. Birds of America. Birds of America? Birds of North America? Birds of America. Birds of America is one of your all-time faves. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dennis, for you, I noticed that there was a uh, memoir about the lead singer of Roxette. Really? Which I, I know is near or and dear. Which, which lead singer? I don't know. The, 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 the lady? Okay. Uh, Marie. Yeah. <laughs> She, I didn't read the thing that closely, but I saw it. And I was like, you know what? I, and I went so far as I screenshot the thing, and I was going to email it to you and say, hey, Dennis, mm. check this out. And then, yeah. I, yeah, she unfortunately passed away from cancer. Yeah, and I was saying that she, apparently, because I do remember reading the little blurb, that uh, she was diagnosed like 20 years before. 
Yeah. And she had lived with this. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, spoilers for anyone that wants to read about Roxette. And for myself, did anyone get, did anyone see anything in the hot list that you might have thought that's something I would like to read? I didn't read the hot list. Uh, sorry. So. <laughs> Colson Whitehead has a new oh, book. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, I tagged that. So I, tag that I went right on the list. Boom. Just like that. So I think it's going to be a great few months. There's also a new Anne Patchett, which, I mean, I have actually just completed my goal of reading all of her books, but now I have a, another one. Oh so. my gosh. Yeah. It's almost as if she was like, huh, I feel that I need to put out another one to force someone else to continue reading. <laughs> well, yes. you know, if uh, Amor Tolls follows your Instagram, perhaps Anne Patchett listens to our podcast. Mm. And when she heard Toby's prediction of finishing all the books, she's like, son of a bitch, I better get out there, <laughs> get something out there to keep, keep it going. If that's the case, thanks for listening in. We appreciate you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is this is Ann Patchett's favorite book podcast, by the way. Oh, I'm sure of it. Prove uh, us wrong, <laughs> Ann Patchett. So shall we go on to the Yeah, we yeah. probably yeah. should. Okay. So as you can probably see, I have a very short biography of Jean Christophe Riel because there's not a lot written about him and what is written about him is mostly in French. And I don't read French and um Google Translate only will get you so far. So this is going to be very brief. So he was born April 25th, 1989 in Montreal. He is a poet, novelist, and screenwriter. He has published six collections of poetry, starting with the self-published Margarine, or Margarine in 2012. His latest collection, Peigné Le Feu, is a book of poetry for children and was published in 2019. His debut novel, Ce qu'on respire sur Tatooine, was published in 2018 and won Quebec's Prix Littéraire des Collégiens and was on the 2020 Canada Reads Long List. From January 2020 to April 2021, he published a poem every week in Le Devoir, a Quebec newspaper. He also regularly leads poetry workshops in secondary schools. He's written a TV show. It's called L'Air d'Allée, which just started on Tele-Quebec this month. And you can watch the first episode on their website. It is about four friends with cystic fibrosis. He's written two more novels, which will be published this year. And Tatooine is currently being adapted for film. He has cystic fibrosis, which has influenced his writing. He often explores themes of illness, fatigue, and loneliness, though shot through with self-deprecating humor. And at the end of last year, he adopted a dog named Billy. Oh, hmm. Yeah. A chien. <laughs> Un chien. Oui. <laughs> I do see the irony of this being this year's one e-read Canada pick, and we all have physical copies of the book in front of us. <laughs> but the reason for that is because one e-read Canada, which is a, I guess, initiative by the Canadian Urban Libraries Council, officially is between April 1st and 30th. And we are recording this before that date, but it will be available sometime during that date, in fact. So this is all to say that we aren't officially participating in the ebook part of it because it's not yet April. But it's still available as an ebook. It's still available as an ebook, but as Dan's pointed out, one copy for now, but more to come, obviously, during the One yeah. Eerie Canada. So by the time you're hearing this, it will be available as an ebook across Canada. It'll be super fun. And because of that, I just thought of mentioning it is because I have picked up the physical book and for the description, I thought I would just read the back of the book. So this is what the back of the book says about tattooing. I should come up with the ideal planet just for me. I'd call it Tatooine, almost the same as the real one, but just different enough. This planet really is my soulmate. It could be my totem, my star sign. I don't want to be a Taurus any longer. I want to be a Tatooine. It's a long way from a basement apartment in a Montreal suburb to a new life on a fictional planet, but that's the destination our unnamed narrator has set his sights on, bringing readers with him on an offbeat and often hilarious journey. 
Along the way, he writes poems, buys groceries at the dollar store, and earns minimum wage at a dead-end supermarket job. But not to worry. He is John McClane. He is the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi, with a bacteria he's never heard of, and he is Meryl Streep, among others. In between treatments for his cystic fibrosis and the constant drip, drip, drip of disappointment, he dreams of a new life on Tatooine, where he'll play Super Mario Brothers and make sand angels all day. But in the meantime, he'll have to make do with daydreams. Daydreams of normality. Daydreams of surreal little catastrophes. Daydreams of a better life on Tatooine. So how did we find it? This was a book that I felt kind of ambivalent towards. I didn't love it and I didn't hate it, but I'm not sure if I liked it or if I disliked it. I found it kind of had this like sad boy fiction thing going on and it really teeters on the edge of self-absorption and I'm so lonely, woe is me. But at the same time, the narrator, he's ill with a condition that sounds genuinely awful. And he's strangely lovable at times, you know, like he he's charming and funny and his observations about the world are kind of cute, like this, these moments of finding beauty in the everyday. So, yeah, ambivalent. <laughs> I found the book very, I guess, it sounds like a weird thing to say about a book, but I found it very readable. Uh, I could sort of see the author's background as uh, a poet, because even though this is written as prose, it, I felt they had sort of a rhythm and a propulsion to it that I just got into. And and because you are, for the most part, if not the entire thing, just reading the main character's thoughts as he goes about his business in the world, you're sort of privy to a lot of absurd observations, things that seem pretty inappropriate. But at the same time, I think we've all been there where we've, we've been in a situation and our brain kind of goes off and it starts kicking into high gear uh, where you do word associations and you come up with a pun or something. At least my brain does. I don't know. I can't speak for everyone's brain. So that part of it I thought was relatable. It definitely gave me elements of uh, Catcher in the Rye. I was thinking of that book. And also uh, Confederacy of Dunces, two books that I felt either this book was influenced by or at least could be fit into that same kind of genre and i wasn't sure if it was a genre but uh, th there's apparently something called a, a picaresque story and i'm just gonna read out a few hallmarks of a picaresque story and you guys can see whether this would apply or not so a picaresque narrative is usually written in the first person as an autobiographical account the main character is often of low character or social status they get by with their wits and rarely deign to hold a job there is little or no plot the story is told in a series of loosely connected adventures or episodes. There's little, if any, character development in the main character. Once a Picaro, always a Picaro. The circumstances may change, but these rarely result in a change of heart. The Picaro story is told with a plainness of language or realism. Well, that one doesn't really apply. Satire is sometimes a prominent element. And the behavior of a picaresque protagonist stops just short of criminality. Carefree or immoral uh, rascality positions the picaresque hero as a sympathetic outsider, untouched by the false rules of society. Yeah, I could see you making a strong argument for this being a picaresque novel. Then, how about you, Dennis? What um, how do you find the story? I found it irritating. Mm. Although I, I will say I'm of two minds of it. Like I didn't enjoy reading it at all, and some of that that sense of poetry that you mentioned was part of why I don't like my prose to be too poetic. And also the, like the word association thing that he often did, it was, there was so much of it that the book felt like word salad to me. 
You know, he's like, he does this. And he's like, I am the X of Y. It was repeated throughout. And that really annoyed me. I struggled to finish it because of the writing style. That said, I was not like, it's not like I didn't like the protagonist at all. I was very sympathetic to the protagonist. Um, I liked a lot of the other characters in the book as well. I think in society in general, uh, disability is not very visible and not very well understood by people. And one thing I thought the novel did very well was illustrate how difficult it is to live with a disability in our society. Even when, like Canada, where we have a lot of medical supports and things, that there are so many gaps that still affect a person with various disabilities, and in this case, cystic fibrosis, and the struggle of what it takes to get through a day. So I like that a lot, that it's shown and that it's visible and that it kind of just shows you that. But yeah, so I, I struggle with a dichotomy. Like, I, I didn't enjoy reading it at all. I still consider it valuable to read because I think that that exposition of disability and struggling through it is really good. But I wouldn't want to read it again. Mm. <laughs> like ambivalence like like you were saying toby some of it could be related to translation it's hard to say how it would have flowed in french i assume they tried to get it give it a similar flow in english but yeah i'm undecided i didn't enjoy the experience of reading it at all but i can see a lot of positive aspects to the book which is probably what i'll focus on as we talk about it more <laughs> i mean one of the things i did like is i mean Nothing happens in this book. There's no there's no narrative, really. There's no plot. It's really the character's mundane existence. But somehow, like you said, Trevor, it's compelling, like it's readable, like mm -hmm. it moves at a really fast pace. And I think it might have to do with the short sentences and that kind of stream of consciousness thing. But I just I just kept wanting to keep reading. I mean, there's also no chapters, so there's no good places to just take a break. There's um, no but, paragraphs either. Yeah, Just yeah. Pages and pages with no indentation at all. Yeah, and it's it's strangely compelling for me, at least. You know, it's one of those things where you you paint with like lots of little dots and stuff, and then when you zoom out a bit, you see a story, and when you zoom out, you get a story of you know a person trying to live day to day with cystic fibrosis and get a job and get funds and uh, actually get a girlfriend, and oh, this is going okay, except then she disappears, and then. And in the ending, <laughs> yeah. Um, do we want to just jump into the ending a bit? Because sure. yeah, sure, here I am. Yeah. So the whole time you're just going through his day to day, and he's talking about his fantasy world of tattooing that he's been building up in his head a bit, like just scattered here and there. And then he suddenly sells all of his possessions and buys a plane ticket to go to uh, Tunisia, Tunisia, where, where Tatooine was based or filmed the plane. Yeah, where the scenes yeah. for Tatooine and Star Wars were filmed. And he's getting on the plane and that's it. It just ends right there. I mean, it has to end somewhere. Yeah. But I mean, almost nothing is happening the whole book. And then boom, he just up and moves. And... Uh, so I was thinking about that, and it's like, like, how do you interpret that ending? You, did you guys have feelings about that before I jump in? Or I well, mean, just a logistical thing. I mean, just getting to New York, like driving, taking the bus from Montreal to New York was really hard for him um, with all of his meds and things. So just uh, purely that. I was like, how is he going to do on an airplane? But anyway. Yeah. I don't know if this is... I guess any interpretation is valid if it's something that you get out of it. But to me, I almost felt like he never actually did get out of the hospital. That when he was in the hospital, he just got sicker and sicker. And those things that he was talking about 
were like metaphors to his body shutting down and Mm -hmm. that he was divesting himself of all of his like earthly goods. And that at a certain point in the story, there's a shift from like just following this guy around and being in his head to actually having, and I don't know, but you know how you sometimes hear people who have near death experiences and they, they see a light and they see things. I almost felt like the ending was, was his tunnel of light that he was going to tattooing, but, but he was dying. No, mm-hmm. I, I don't like, again, I don't, I, that's sort of the only way I could take it. Cause otherwise you're right. None of it else makes sense. It's not logical that this guy who is, struggles to get up and go down the street and a trip to New York was like an expedition to the South Pole can do all this. Like to me, it didn't sort of seem true to the character that we've come to know over the book. That this is something. So, but anyway, that's, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's totally off base. No, that's one of the interpretations that uh, occurred to me too. Uh, not specifically that he was dying, but that he had a that it was describing a mental break. Because mm. uh, that's the other thing. Like towards the end, he's talking to the social worker, and the social worker is like, you know, you're you're kind of dissociating. You're separating yourself from reality to cope with this stuff. And he he kind of glosses over that and doesn't really address it later. Uh, I think there's one more mention of it, but. It could well be that what the book is describing is a person struggling and the book never even mentions his depression. He's clearly depressed and he just has a mental break. And in his mind, he's off going to uh, travel. And but in reality, he's not. Mm. That's one interpretation. The other one is that he is doing it. And it's just he's decided, you know what? I can't stand this life I'm living anymore. And I'm going to take one big shot. And so it's an inspirational thing and it cuts off where it does partly because realistically it isn't going to go well and he's going to have a terrible time after that. But you can imagine as the character was imagining that he's going to go off there and something better can happen to him. So it's either like a fantasy inspirational kind of end or it's uh, no, he's completely uh, split from reality at that point and uh, is going to be hospitalized longer term. But I can't see it, a, like you said, I can't see it as a realistic thing for the character to do because he, he struggled with so much. And how is it possibly going to be better going to another country? <laughs> and the, the, the sudden sudden ending, too, it, when it happened, it, I, I was thinking of the uh, end of The Sopranos, mm-hmm. which is a famous, I don't know, at the end, uh, Tony Soprano is in a restaurant with his family and, you know, he's sitting there eating and guy comes in and kind of looks up at him and sits down and then, and then, uh, it just, it, it just doesn't seem to be leaned to anywhere. And then the screen goes black mm-hmm. and it, it was so sudden and when it was aired on HBO, people phoned their cable subscribers and say the show cut out before it ended, <laughs> before it realized, no, that was a deliberate choice. And then for quite a while it was ambiguous as to what was supposed to happen when the lights went out. But then it was revealed later that, yeah, he was killed. And, uh, so I almost feel like that this abrupt ending was analogous to that in a way that it ended and that was not the book ended and everything ended for him, but that maybe that's too dark. And again, there's nothing that it's left up to interpretation. It doesn't Mm -hmm. spell it out, but I I was having a hard time coming to terms with his choices there in the last bit because it didn't, but then when, you know, when you're not maybe well, you do make poor choices too. So it's, yeah. I mean, this can end happily ever after, like cystic fibrosis. 
there's no cure for it. You die early when you have cystic fibrosis. So there was, there's no way it can be like, I'm suddenly cured and I have a girlfriend and I'm going to find a better job and publish my poetry and, and everything's going to turn out because it is a death sentence, unfortunately, when you have this disease. And maybe there's a bit of fatality in that too. Yeah. And it may just be like, hmm, how do I end this book? <laughs> yeah. Um, because it, it is challenging. So it's not like there's a solid plot you could follow and then wrap up that way. Yeah, well, it gives us something to speculate about. I did like the... When he was do, selling off his stuff and his landlord was getting kind of sad about it. Mm. Poor Norm. Yeah. yeah. You know, that was, guy. that was one of the relationships in the book that I really enjoyed kind of watching. Like at the beginning, you know, it's just, hey, sure, I'll, I'll rent you this place. And he's kind of very lackadaisical about it and relaxed. And uh, the narrator is like, you know, sure, and going in. But then they develop this really close relationship. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like a very long period of time, you know, but they just kind of connected in a certain way. And uh, it was sweet. It was very sweet. Just a couple of lonely white dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting there alone, not much else to do. One gets the other one a job as a Santa's elf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, there, there were there were moments, weren't there? Yep. Once you got past the writing style. Uh, <laughs> that's really the only thing I didn't like about the book was the writing style. And that was what made it hard for me to read. But the story itself, as it went, is, was fine, right? Like I say, I like the characters. You know how we often talk about unreliable narrators in the books that we read. And I was I was thinking when I was reading this that this guy was probably maybe the opposite of an unreliable narrator because he was so hard on himself and he was so describing his appearance and stuff. And yet he was very successful with his girlfriend. And I didn't find that part believable. <laughs> no. You know? Did you, like, I, like those scenes, I'm like, uh, what? And I'm like, well... If he's being so honest about these other failings in his life, surely he's not making this up. But again, maybe that goes to the whole meta idea of maybe he is having a break with reality. I don't know. And also just the fact that anyone would want to watch the Star Wars prequels oh. is very suspect. <laughs> well, she didn't want to watch them, No, she them, didn't. Though. No, no. She true. endured yeah. them because she liked him. Yeah, that too was improbable. <laughs> yeah, like... Out of all the great Star Wars things that are out there, like he has to reference those shitty prequels. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was a real fan. I mean. But the prequels? Yeah. I'm not saying that's a good choice, but <laughs> I, mean, I don't think he, I think a lot of choices the character made weren't great choices. But the thing is the Star Wars spoke to him, right? That was something that he connected with. And uh, of all the different references and things that were on through the novel, that was the most consistent one. But I repeat, the prequels? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you, well, uh, no, the worst yeah. part yeah. of the whole Star Wars universe. It's not even an opinion. It's like mm. documented. Yeah. Jar Jar Binks, I mean... Yeah. I roll. I'm, I'm not arguing that they're good. <laughs> but I'm not arguing that they're even watchable. But all, all I can say, though, is that for anyone who has any time in New York City and they get hungry and their go-to is McDonald's, then, yeah, that is a guy that likes the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, that, that was one of the saddest parts of the books for me was that he's out there walking around, right? You can go to Central Park, whatever, you know, go to a museum. The dude goes to McDonald's and he gets his cheeseburger, you know? And I'm like, I get it, right? It's comfort. It's reliable. 
It's familiar but, when you're in a strange place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for sure. But at the same time, you're in New York City, you know? You know, he was kind of reluctantly in New York City. Yeah. Like his sister wanted him to come. So he came. He didn't know what else to do at that moment, right? He was just, things suck. I don't know what to do. His sister says, I'll buy you a ticket. Come on over. Also, the odds that he has a passport, very slim, right? <laughs> Why do you yeah. say that? Well, because he to go to New York, you need a passport. Right. And yeah. he, he seems like the type of guy that wouldn't have yeah. one. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, but, even traveling to Montreal was a pain in the butt, right? Yeah. Well, there's nothing that says he can't travel. No, no. no. I just think that but, character is unlikely to have a passport. But mm. wasn't wasn't there a whole bunch of kerfuffle? Like, was his passport expired? Or there was something, remember, he, they brought him in? No, it was because no. they had the medication. Yeah. Yeah. The drug, yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. And he was, uh, you know. He had to justify the. Yeah, and he yeah. held the whole bus up and the, everyone's mad at him. <laughs> uh, that was one of the other things I thought the the book really illustrated well. Like, we're in his head. So we know, you know, he may lie about things on a job application or, you know, that he horked up uh, blood on something on the side or things like that. But he's a nice guy. He's not meaning anybody harm. But at the same time, all these different people he's running into, you can see how they would be really annoyed with him, how they wouldn't like him. As a coworker, he flakes out all the time. He's not there. He doesn't do the thing right. He's uh, he's not good at his work. Yeah, he goes around and pushes doorbells and gets someone so mad they chase him, you know. <laughs> he does a lot of things that annoy other people, but he's not a bad guy. And it kind of illustrates something that I uh, I heard many years ago that stuck with me. It was an advocate for uh, vulnerable people who was saying vulnerable people are often not likable people. And I feel like this guy is like that. He's clearly vulnerable. He's clearly needing supports that he doesn't have. But he's also annoying and does stupid things a lot. And uh, it would be very easy to blame a lot of his misfortunes on him because of the poor decision-making. But you can see how he's struggling with all these things and how it, you know, like when you've had to go and have a pick inserted and you you got to this infection and then, and then you're like, you know, screw it. I'm going to go to McDonald's. I'm going to eat some crappy food. I'm going to do this stupid thing because why not? I'm so tired of all of this. You can see where it comes from. And that's something you don't see when you're just interacting with a person. You interact with a vulnerable person and they're, they're a bit of a jerk and you think, ah, screw you, you know, because uh, you just have that one interaction. But, but there are reasons why vulnerable people may not be likable. I thought Tatooine really illustrated that very well. He still remains sympathetic as a character. I was thinking too, then if, if we follow that through and say that, you know, he's was unlikable, then he, encountered a lot of like saintly people we consider like norm like it was like, <laughs> unconditional love in a way and his sister would go to the ends of the earth for him she showed up with her boyfriend to help him move and then did all that she could really to include him in in family stuff and even the <laughs> the people that he you know in the hospital the orderlies he, he kind of won over in a, in a weird way but uh yeah he ha- is like he had there were opportunities for him and he either ignored them or he didn't take them up or something. And that was also kind of sad that I felt that there were, there were times where maybe he could, if he, if he just wasn't so in his own head, maybe get help and find some measure of usefulness or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. Although I, I found that very realistic though, because I, I know people with health conditions that require a lot of care. 
And the thing is, you get tired of it. You just get so tired. Like you go to the doctor, you go to this other doctor, you go to a, you know, a physiotherapist or a, another clinician. You don't have the same time that other people have for fun things in your life. You know, your schedule keeps getting disrupted by your medical needs. And after a while, it's like, you know, I don't, why do I want to go to a doctor? Nothing gets better. And in the case of cystic fibrosis, you know, it's a downhill slide. Like they haven't figured it out. They haven't, they don't know how to stop it. It's just a matter of how long you lengthen your life, but how comfortable is it? So at times it's very easy to fall into the, you know, I'm not even going to try. Why would I try? I'm not getting anywhere. And the treatments often feel like they're as bad as the condition. And while from an objective outside view, maybe you, other people might not see it that way. But when you're enduring it, uh, it's very easy to just get completely sick of it and uh, not want to do it. This has put me in mind of a, a good Goodreads review that I found um, that I thought was quite funny, which says, reading this book, I really wanted to Google, does cystic fibrosis turn you into an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> so. And it doesn't, but it's just enduring all of the things that go with it do. Yeah, and I'm no doctor, but like you're saying, does he had more going on than cystic fibrosis. So there, there was depression, there was an OCD element, there was maybe a personality disorder there 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 are things that like this guy he had layers of of things that he was working through and he probably didn't even realize he was but as readers yeah it was quite obvious well and you know a lot of the times people would ask him how he was and he was just oh, i'm fine doing great and that's something that happens a lot when people are sick a lot is they don't want to get into it with you because there's just too much and people try to be well-meaning and say oh maybe you should do this maybe you should do that and you've done it 20 times already so you don't want to hear it anymore so one of the things that occurred to me, too, he talked at one point about going on welfare, and I noticed there was no mention anywhere of him getting disability payments. I have looked up how you apply for disability in the past. It's remarkably difficult. Like, you read this book, and you know this guy struggles to work. Just any job he can have, even if he can do it for a while, he gets sick again, goes to the hospital, and then can't show up for work, so he loses his job. But the requirements on like uh, Canada Revenue Agency's website for uh, applying for disability, like EIA disability, where you get payouts regularly, he wouldn't qualify because hmm. he can go out and shop for groceries. He can go out and get his own stuff. He can drive. He's too mobile and effective to qualify for disability payments. But come on, right? Like, yeah. He has cystic fibrosis. He go, he's out of circulation for long periods of time due to his health condition. And I mean, I might be wrong. I'm not a tax expert or a disability expert. It's just my personal reading when I looked at the rules for what you have to actually have for them to pay you a disability. It's really, really hard. And I don't think he qualifies, hmm. which is why the character didn't have that option, but didn't even mention it. But hmm. that still feels very wrong to me that someone can be that sick and struggle that much and they still can't get that kind of a benefit. So I would have thought that's what we have it for. And the character himself doesn't even really talk about the deficits in the support system he has. Because you could be in that position and you could whine about how difficult things are. And I say whine, but it's like it's, it's justified, like it's legitimate. He has a lot of struggles that he needs help with and there isn't any support for it, especially for him because he doesn't have any family close by. But he doesn't complain about it. He just tries to find a job while he can and to write his poems and try to get them published. Well, I thought that was one of the sort of the charming aspects of it was that in any situation, he was able to sort of 
see the humorous side, like when he was recommended to get a, a therapist and, you know, no one called him back and just that mm-hmm. whole thing. I mean, it, it was a sad story, but the way it was told, uh, it was entertaining and self-effacing. And yeah, there are a lot of moments in the book where if you were just saying, this is what's going to happen to this character, you'd be like, mm, that's, but then it's the way that it's told from his perspective and his imaginations all at once uh, together that make it sort of readable. Mm-hmm. I want to say he had a good attitude, but also like that's complicated because he was also disassociating from the world around him and that's potentially dangerous. He was very resilient. You know, he, he tries, he tries. He tried. Oh man. He, he did try very hard all the time. Yeah. Like he tried almost by not really engaging, right? Whenever there was a situation, he was like, well, I'm not going to deal with the situation. This is like eyes wide shut, or this is like mm-hmm. die hard, or this is like on Tatooine or, uh, in fact, he didn't even call his girlfriend by her actual name. He kept referring to her as Amidala. Made me half wonder if he actually called her that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if he had sex with her. Yeah. She was a hard character to get a read on too. Like she was nice to him, you know, and he's like, oh, okay. Uh, and he was trying to not to read too much into it, but then she's like, yeah, can I come over to your place? Yeah. Let's <laughs> Yeah. yeah, very forward. Yeah, very forward. Yeah. But maybe he needs that. Yeah, there's definitely something about him that attracted people to him. Like, well, he is a poet. It's true. And a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. In the end, he was a nice guy who was struggling with things. Nothing not to like about him. You know, I mean, granted, if you're throwing a party and he came and he puked all over your carpet, maybe you wouldn't be so fond of him. Yeah, but know? the brother got him drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Have some more creme de menthe. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. As regular listeners of the podcast know, I can't read a book without going to Google Street View. Mm-hmm. And this was one was no different. So I, I was touring the streets of Repenye, which was the neighborhood that our character lived. And sure enough, there, every once in a while, he would actually name street names. And so I really got into it. I really, I really got into the street. And did you know that whole sequence where he's walking down the street and he sees his old couch on the front and he's sad because he, he had sold it with the contents and he thought the new guy was going to use it and didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I was on that very street and look, there is a couch Whoa. on the street, <laughs> on Google Street View. Now, it wasn't a magenta couch. It was white. But I nearly fell off my chair when I was scrolling through the street. And I was like, what, what's that white thing there? That's a couch on the very street where he supposedly saw his couch so now now i don't know what to think maybe that's, that is his couch that's amazing yeah so i just wanted to bring that i'll put a picture of that up on our show notes and it was just one of those moments that's like i know you guys are probably tired of me talking about google street view but i just I always keep finding amazing things on there and i'm not gonna stop <laughs> no it makes me one well i don't know if the picture is from like 2018 or whenever he was writing the book and uh he based the, that on that. You know, it, it, the, this was July 2017, so it could very well... It could have been his actual couch. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I hope it was. Yeah, I do too. You know, I'm on Google Street View. What? Are you? Yeah, not the most recent one, but a few years back when I lived in London, um, my friend and I were walking around the University of Western Ontario campus and the Google Streetcar drove by, and sure enough, we were there. Yeah. Oh, but they've since updated. Yeah. I think there's a feature where you can actually look yeah, at you old can. versions. Yeah, which is, it's actually quite fun because you can find your house and like watch the trees grow and stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that'll be a thing. It'll be like a time machine. Can you imagine if we had Google Street View 100 years ago? We could go back to like what the Portage and Main look like. Well, we could if, you know, Google still allowed you access to it at the time. It's yeah. one of the things about corporate owned uh, That's true. repositories of knowledge. Yeah. Do we got anything else we want to jump into or any, got any final comments about the book? It's an interesting choice for this one e-read Canada thing. I'm curious what their reasoning is for, for choosing this book. Oh, right. I was also going to mention that the, the one e-read Canada, they have a uh, Facebook group just for discussing this book. So you can find it, of course, on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash one e-read Canada. And it's hosted by the Vancouver Public Library. Mm-hmm. And right now there's not really a thing up because, of course, at the time of recording, it's not April 1st. But mm-hmm. by the time everyone hears this, it will be past April 1st. And so perhaps maybe there'll be other people that will comment about the book. Hopefully there will be. Maybe perhaps someone will have listened to this podcast and given their thoughts on there. And yeah, I'd be very curious to hear what other people think about this book across Canada. See if there are regional takes or those that have read or listened to the original French language version versus the English version. Everything through the One E-Read Canada website, they will have interviews with the author and interviews with the translators at some point. So that would be your one-stop shop to find all the information for this year's One E-Read Canada. The one question I have for the translators is, is pull a face really a thing anywhere else? I've never heard that expression for make a face. Hmm. Oh, have you ever heard that? It didn't stand out to me as being odd. Oh, see, for me, it was weird. It just, I pulled a face. It's like, you pulled a face? Mm. I've never heard it said that way before in my life. And one of the translators is originally from Ireland and the other from England. I wonder, could it be a British-ism? I don't know. I just found it weird. Mm. It was only one time where he said he made a face. The rest of the times, it was always pulling a face. Mm. Anyway, minor note. I just, uh, it caught my eye. Perhaps a future nerd word. (laughs) With that, I guess we'll wrap up this segment. Although if you're listening to this and you have a very different opinion of it than we did, feel free to email us about it at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. But in the meantime, we will move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? Um, I struggled with this as um, this is not really the type of book I generally read. So I thought maybe I can find another book by French Canadian or a book with a sad white male narrator or something really gritty and spare. But I came up short in those categories. So I'm recommending a book which is also a novel in translation. But that is all it has in common with, with tattooing. Lo- love in the time of cholera. Oh, no. God, no. <laughs> the book is Kim Ji Young, born 1982 by Cho Nam Ju. Um, it was originally written in Korean. It was published in 2016. And I don't think a lot of people know about this book, which is a shame because it is fire. This book starts out with our titular protagonist, Kim Ji-yong, in the present, having what appears to be a psychotic break. She is impersonating other women, but she's not aware that she's doing so. And then the narrative goes back in time and follows her through her life. And every stage of her life is impacted by sexism and misogyny. So as a child, she is seen as inferior to her brother. At school, she has to eat lunch after the boys. Her father blames her for being harassed. At university, her lesser male counterparts are chosen for internships. Uh, She's overlooked when applying for jobs. She has to leave her job after having a baby and on and on and on. So it's a quick read. It's not 
not very long. It's super powerful. Just really makes you want to smash the patriarchy and um, can't say enough good things about him. And we have it. Excellent. Yeah. Unlike Toby, I, I didn't really struggle with the realic, but I feel like I may have cheated a little bit because the one e-read Canada people have put together a discussion guide and one page is simply called Rita Likes for Tattooing. <laughs> so uh, my pick did come from this page. And so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. It's called Death Sentences by Suzanne Meyer. It was originally written in French as Mises à Mort. And WPL only has the French language version in our St. Boniface branch. And has been, it has been translated into English. I'll just maybe read a description of it and let and see whether this speaks to you. So, witty and refreshing with unpredictable plots and quirky characters, death sentences intrigue and entertain. Death may seem like a grim subject matter, but in the capable hands of Susan Meyer, nothing is beyond humor. Though at times sincere, sorrowful, and even a tad gruesome, death sentences is also wry, mordant, and amusingly ironic. Death Sentences features 13 unique short stories thematically united by death, sex, and existential angst. Solitary and dejected characters explore Montreal's parks and alleys, seeking comfort and contending with their own everyday tragedies. A woman contemplates the deadly consequences of an almond croissant. Another escapes her worries in a monastery. Precocious children's fates are intertwined with a Rottweiler's. Young girls fall in love with the most unlikely partners, and a woman sees salvation in a most unconventional way. The tales and death sentences intrigue, surprise, and entertain from one page to the next. Have yes. you read this book? No, I have okay. not. Okay. I have read the Rita Lex for Tattooing <laughs> Discussion Guide. I want to know what the deadly consequences of an almond croissant are. I want to know you'll, what an unconventional salvation looks like. Okay. So mm-hmm. I may talk to our collections librarians and see if they are able to find an English language translation for the collection. That would be cool. And if they can, I will be most grateful, as will perhaps other readers of Tattooing. So my book recommendation comes from the book, although that's not how I selected it. Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, which Trevor has with him right now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not someone that always carries Catcher in the Rye with me. I just <laughs> want to make that clear that you know I'm not... Uh, you know, a conspiracy theorist necessarily. So I just wanted to get that out there because. Yeah, because it has weird. T- it was mentioned yeah. in Conspiracy Theory, the movie. Right, right. It's so, association it's, with certain assassins. And, and, yeah. and since, you know, we may have a, a wider audience than normal, I just want to get on record. I don't want to get anyone to get the wrong impression about me. I do, ha- I do have a copy of it, though. That part is true. So reading this book and the idiosyncratic style of the narrator reminded me of Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger which was originally published in 1951. It follows Holden Caulfield after he's just been expelled from yet another school, wandering around New York City, encountering a number of people and situations, trying to escape from the phonies and find some real meaning. I thought of this book very early on while I was reading it because of the writing style, so it was a bit of a surprise when it was mentioned specifically in the book because the narrator's sister's boyfriend liked to read it every Christmas, and I thought that was a nice little nod to something that must have been an inspiration while this was being written. It's been a while since I read Catcher in the Rye, and if you look at reviews of it, it really seems to depend on when you read it in your life. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people like it at one point in their life and then dislike it later. And like it, it has a wide range of opinions, but it's a classic and uh, definitely worth a read, especially if you like Tatooine. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds 
wherein our panelists chat about words that caught our imagination recently. I can go. Um, but you know, when you're saying that, I always have that like theme music in my head. No, do you know what I'm talking? About? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I can cut it in. Oh, no, copyright and all the royalties. Yeah. All right. Anyway, my word this month is sidekick. Um, which, of course, um, in this book is a reference to one of the protagonist's favorite foods, nor sidekicks, which I don't think I've ever had. Have you had them? Yes. Are I used good? to eat them a lot. Okay. When I, uh, and I, they've been around a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they were always owned by Knorr because, you know, these uh, food companies trade it. But uh, in the 90s, I feel like I had them about half my meals for a couple oh, of years. Wow. Was there one in particular that you really liked? Well, it's like noodles and sauce type stuff, right? So, yeah, but there's a lot of varieties. Yeah, so I would just get different varieties all the time. Oh, okay. You know, but they were easy to make. You know, my idea of a balanced meal was just that there was enough for me to eat. I didn't have veggies and the starch and stuff, you know, much like out. Much like this character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I'm not talking about the sidekick side dish, but the word, which according to Merriam-Webster, is a person closely associated with another as a subordinate or partner. So we see this all the time in literature, in movies, in pop culture. Think Sancho Panza, Dr. Watson, Tonto, Robin, Samwise Gamgee, Ron Weasley, etc., etc., The first recorded use of the term is from 1896. It's believed to originated in pickpocket slang. Kick was the front pocket of a pair of pants, believed to be the pocket safest from theft. So the person by your side is your closest companion. They're beside your kick. I don't don't know if I buy this origin story. I can't (laughs) find anything to back it up, but it's all that's out there. Earliest recorded sidekicks may be Enkaido, who was a sidekick to Gilgamesh, but you also have Patroclus to Achilles and Aaron to Moses. And maybe in this book, his sidekick is literally sidekicks. <laughs> I, I don't know. Or Norm. Maybe Norm. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. I don't think he really had a sidekick. He was like a, yeah, a solo hero type. Yeah. yeah. Well, my uh, word this month came... Indirectly from the book, the narrator had a book called Soviet Mountains and Valleys or Mountains and Streams or something like that. And then he thought, well, maybe it's like the the mountains and streams of cystic fibrosis. And he carried that with him and in fact left it at his sister's place. His sister's boyfriend was reading it. And anyway, early on when the book is first mentioned, it talks about a country that I had never heard of called Kyrgyz. I was taken by this because I felt like in this day and age, I've heard of every place. And I I said to myself, you know, cockily, and no, there's a country that used to be part of the former Soviet Union that after the Soviet Union collapsed, came Kyrgyzstan, and now it's known as the Kyrgyz Republic. It's a landlocked country. But what really I was taken with is their flag. And I printed a copy of it, but then, of course, I will put a proper full-color picture on the show notes, but for our purposes, it's black and white. Uh, and, and so for Dennis and Toby's purpose... <laughs> it uh, looks like the Xbox logo. Yeah, so you can imagine, like, it's a, a, a dark red background with yellow. 
yeah, in the middle. So that can give you an idea. There, there are 40 points of sun around that represent the 40 tribes of Kyrgyz, which apparently is what Kyrgyz means in the Turkic language, is a collection of 40 tribes. So very specific. Hmm. And the part that I love about this flag is that the middle part, which is the sun, this is supposed to be what you see when you're lying in a yurt and you're looking up through the roof oh. because they are a nomadic people. Yurts and herding uh, and traveling is such a part of their culture that they decided to put what you see when you wake up in a yurt in the middle of the flag. And I just love that, the, the idea. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not sure if my nerd word is uh, Kyrgyz or the Kyrgyz national flag, but uh, <laughs> I will put links to both in the show notes. I don't think Kyrgyz national flag counts as a word. Right. <laughs> Kyrgyz then. Yes. What's the capital of Kyrgyz? I don't I don't know if they have anything big enough as a city. Uh, the capital of Kyrgyz <laughs> is Kyrgyz. I don't know, Toby. Okay. We will leave that for as an exercise for the <laughs> listener. So my word for this month is latibulate, which means to hide in a corner. It's derived from the Latin latibulum, which means either hiding place, refuge, or refers to an animal's den. I saw it mentioned on a post on Mastodon a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was very appropriate for this book. So, latibulate. Pardon me, I shall be latibulating. <laughs> In Dagobah. <laughs> yes. So, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. The Bluest Eye is Toni Morrison's first novel, a book heralded for its richness of language and boldness of vision. Set in the author's girlhood hometown of Lorraine, Ohio, it tells the story of black 11-year-old Picola Breedlove. Picola prays for her eyes to turn blue so that she will be as beautiful and beloved as all of the blonde, blue-eyed children in America. In the autumn of 1941, the year the marigolds in the Breedlove's garden do not bloom, Picola's life does change in painful, devastating ways. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. seem a grim grim subject matter, but in the capable hands of Susan Meyer, nothing is beyond humor, though at times sincere. I am just realizing I copied it. You got it it twice there. Oh, Lord. Okay. (laughs) What the heck? That is weird. This is how this day is going. I'm just going to just, where am I going to finish this thing off? I don't know. I was like, is this the third time through? <laughs>
But you know, the beauty is the editor. You can make this as short and listenable as possible. You can just use or, two lines of it. Or I could leave the whole thing oh. in. <laughs> what will I do? Oh, what no. will I do? 